Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jason Newton, visiting assistant professor at Cornell University and the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Tim LeCaine, professor of history at Montana State University. Tim's first book is Mass Destruction, The Men and Great Minds That Wired America and Scarred the Planet. It was published in 2009, and it 2009, and it's about open pit copper mines in the American West. The book won a Best Book of the Year Award from the Environmental Society, the American Society for Environmental History, and was chosen by the review publication Choice as an outstanding book of the year. Tim has published numerous articles and op-eds. Uh, in 2017, he was a senior visiting fellow at the Oslo Center for Advanced Study in Norway. Uh, From 2011 to 2012, Tim was a senior fellow at the Rachel Carson Center in Munich. But today, we're here to talk about a book that, for me, was uh, one of maybe two or three books I've read in the last four years that has truly changed my perspective, scholarly, politically, and epistemologically. Uh, The book is titled The Matter of History, How Things Create the Past, and it was published by Cambridge University Press in 2017. Tim LeCain, welcome to the show. All right. Well, thank you, Jason, and thanks very much for that generous introduction. Yeah. So, Tim, uh, I was wondering if we could begin the interview by uh, you telling the audience a bit about yourself, your background, and perhaps uh, your personal connection to mining, which has been a theme of much of your work, if you have any personal connection, and how your work on mining has led to uh, uh, this book, The Matter of History. Yeah, sure. You know, I'm, yeah, I think I had a somewhat unorthodox academic or career trajectory uh, in in my life, you know, because I grew up in Montana in what was then a very small town, Missoula, Montana, that it was an old timber town, lumber town that was just kind of starting to get bigger and take off and when I was there. But, you know, and we had a really big, <laughs> I grew up in a family of five boys and we didn't have a lot of money. And I just, I hardly even left the state of Montana until I was well into my teens. You know, so I lived, you know, I had sort of a pretty, um, small, rural, isolated uh, upbringing. But one of the things we did do was travel around the state. You know, we go camping a lot and fishing and hunting and things. But on one of these trips, we did go to Butte, Montana, which your readers may or may not know, or your listeners, excuse me, may or may not know, was one of the biggest copper mines in the world. Um, pretty much from the 19-teens forward. 
in the 1950s, they switched it over to this uh, open pit uh, technology, you know, using big shovels and explosives to root out massive amounts of earth and ore, and then pick out the just really tiny amount of copper in there, usually less than 1% by that point. So most of it's waste. So when I was about, I guess, 12, I think, my older brother was a basketball player. He had a, a basketball game in Butte. So we went to see the game and we stayed there. But I was much more impressed by the pit because it was really kind of scary to see it. It was unlike anything I'd ever seen in you know, little rural Missoula, Montana, Western Montana. So I had never seen anything like that. And I think that's kind of what, where it all began, where my fascination with, you know, both not, you know, I was never in it just for the mining per se. I wouldn't even call myself a mining historian, really. But what I was really intrigued by was how some sort of human technology could result in such a huge change in the landscape. It's shocking, you know, which at that point was, you know, almost three quarters of a mile deep pit. Um, and I think that's what got me thinking about, you know, how does that fit into our existence as, as Americans, but then more broadly as humans on this planet? What were they doing with all that copper and did they have to make such a mess uh, in order to do it? So Beale was a little scary. And my brother was actually kind of scared to be playing basketball there because the Butte team had a really tough reputation, right? This is a town of miners and miners' kids, you know, they they were a bit edgy, but I don't even remember what happened with the game. I hope we won. <laughs> but that's kind of where it all began. Um, and so it led, as you said, to the mass destruction book, where I tried to explain not just Butte, but also the Bingham Pit down in Salt Lake, which is uh, an even bigger copper mine, and explain the technology behind it. Why did we need it? What did we do with the copper? So even then, I was very much sort of on this material track. I was interested in real changes, real things that have been created like copper and what the effects are for the society that, that uses them. And it seemed like copper would be a really good way to get at these questions of, you know, what's, our, what's the relationship between people and nature or people in the environment and technology and ultimately more broadly i just became intrigued with the idea that well it's really just a material relationship how are we shaped and formed by the things that we interact with and that's kind of what led to the next book all right, great. Um, so you know let's continue with that um, that train of thought there. And why don't we just go into what's at the heart of the book, uh, neo what you call neo-materialism. And I was wondering if you could explain that to the listeners through what's going on in our stomachs, because I thought that was a really interesting way that you introduced us to that, to that idea. Oh, right. Great. Thanks. Yeah. So over the past five, well, really probably almost 10 years, my thinking began to shift a lot about how we should understand 
what it means to be human, essentially. And what I was sort of realizing is that the modernist idea of what it meant to be human was a very bounded one, right? Sure, we interact with the world around us and the world around us influences our behavior and our ideas and our culture and so forth, but they're fairly distinct. And I'd even go so far as to say that that's one of the defining features of modernity. And really, that's more or less um, Bruno Latour's idea, right? Saying that that was a modernist idea, and but is it true? So Latour says, well, no, we've never been modern. That was never really true that we were separated from nature. But now over the past 10 years or so, that the reality of that has become very material. It's become right in our faces, really. And the example that I start the book off with is our microbiome that, you know, inhabits our, you know, two kilograms that inhabits our gut. And there's, of course, a microbiome on your skin and your nose and so forth. But the one I focus on is the the famous one in our gut. And if you kind of sort of, if you ask people, so who are you? Where are you? What what makes you who you are? Still, the, the typical response is, well, it's my mind. My mind is who I am. And that's kind of what determines the way I think and look at the world and, and so forth. And then other people will say, oh, well, maybe my body too, right? I'm kind of in my body. That's, that's who I am. But the microbiome seems to flip that upside down because if there's two kilograms inside your body that are totally not you, right? Entirely different DNA, you know, bacteria, um, viruses, that these are foreign organisms. They're not you at all. So where is you exactly, right? Um, Some people in the when they were sort of explaining the human microbiome, they would, they would say, well, you're always a, a we. We're always a we, even when we're alone, right? We're always sort of an amalgam of different uh, creatures. And still people might say, well, that's okay, fine. That affects the way I digest my food maybe, but that doesn't make determine how I feel or influence how I feel or act. But we know that it does, in fact, right? Because the microbiome produces something like 90% of the serotonin in your body. And of course, serotonin is associated with feeling good, feeling ambitious, like you can go out and change the world. So that's a pretty central aspect of anybody's character, right? How much they feel that way. Yet it has nothing to do with their mind or it's linked to their mind, but it's actually generated by these microbes in their stomachs. So that began to make it clear to me that humans are much more embedded in the world around them. And that world is much more embedded in them than we had really understood before. And if you're going to say that we are sort of have a new idea of what it means to be human, then it seems to me we need to have a new idea of humanism. What do we do as humanists, historians, people who study literature, whatever? Um, What is the humanist endeavor? Because the old one, 
the old modernist one, I think they had a biology too, but their biology said, well, you're, you are in your mind and that's separate from your biology or, or nature, that that's distinct. So they actually had a biological model. It was just one of separation. Now we know that really isn't true. And so I think we have to re-evaluate what the humanist project is, you know, what our methods are, how we approach it, what sort of questions we ask. So that microbiome, I think, is, I'm not really doing microbiotic history. I don't think we're quite there yet, but it points the way towards what I'm interested in terms of the new materialism. Because the old materialism, you might say, well, you know, say a Marxist materialism, the means of production or the other material things around affect culture and the way we think and so forth. And I'd, I would agree with that. But now we know, it, well, it's not just affecting it. it it's inside of you. It is you. You, you know, that, we, that, that line between the organism and its environment has really become so porous now. We need to rethink our material nature. Yeah, uh, great. And, and maybe, um, so I have a follow-up that, that, that allow you to elaborate on that a little bit. Um, when I was a graduate student uh, training to become a historian, all my professors had been trained at a time when the cultural and the linguistic turn was the, the hottest new thing. So that's kind of their approach. And that got transmitted to me during, during my training and, and all of my colleagues in graduate school. And, you know, so Foucault was, was the Bible and Derrida was something, you know, we, we all uh, said that we read, but most of us were kind of scared to really tackle it. Um, so how does neo-materialism contest, but also complement uh, those older ways of, of thinking about history, particularly the cultural and the linguistic approaches? Right. Yeah. So what I argue in the book is that I'm, I and other sort of new or new materialists aren't necessarily trying to totally overturn the cultural turn um, or the linguistic turn, but in many ways we're building on it. But as it actually developed, as it was actually put into practice by many historians, there was a tendency to overestimate the power of, of, of uh, discourse, of thinking, of culture in shaping the world around us, and to put all of the emphasis on the way we think and um, fairly abstract ideas of how the brain works and constructs reality around it. And so, my point was not that that's necessarily not true. You know, I think it's obvious that the way we think about the world, the way our culture shapes the way we think about the world is a very important part of, of understanding the past and the present. But as I was suggesting before, it's just far too limited when we begin to understand how much the environment that we said we were shaping, right, that we were constructing, how much of that environment is already inside us, has already made us who we are as both biological and cultural creatures. 
So I'm not so, so much against cultural construction per se, but I would just step back to an earlier point before one starts to say that I'm culturally constructed or this is culturally constructed, right? My question would be, well, where did the culture come from? How did that culturally merge? And if you look at that from a materialist angle, you begin to see how deeply it was created in the first place by material changes uh, around us and within, you know, within us. So again, if we're sort of thinking about, well, the way I look at the world is how that world is shaped and formed. Because I grew up in, or I was, excuse me, trained in the very same tradition you're talking about in history of technology, right? The emphasis was on the cultural construction of technology, right? The technology itself tended to get minimized. And the big bugaboo of the cultural constructivists, their enemy in many ways, was any sort of hint of technological determinism. And I'm certainly not saying we should have technological determinism, but to to not even sort of grapple with how the technology really is already shaping us seemed like a, a major error. So as that sort of played out, um, I think we lost sight of a lot of very important ideas and now they're beginning to trickle back in and we can truly get a more multifaceted nuanced understanding of how culture materiality kind of emerge together biology they they all begin to sort of merge together and you know so, so it's not just the idea that we have a microbiome right that's that's too narrow but for example i would sort of argue that i would argue that when we are constructed by our materiality our culture emerges from things from our relationship with things and we don't just think about things that's kind of the old linguistic turn right mm -hmm. that there was this abstract idea of, of a thing and that that's what counted but rather, I think more of the recent linguistic and cognitive science shows that we think through things, right? We don't just think about them, we think through them. And a lot of that is biologically embedded. It's, it's not just in our higher brain functions, but deep in our emotions, our feelings, you know, the sense of touch and smell and taste, you know, all that all these things form who we are. And all of them are very material aspects. So I really see it as strengthening the cultural turn in some ways by deepening our idea of what culture is. That it's not just an abstract linguistic discursive thing, but it's very much a material thing. And that the two can't really easily be teased apart. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think you're completely right. In the matter of history, this book really does complement those ideas um, and, and it, it extends upon them. And that's what I really liked about the book. Um, and of course, you're not writing this in a vacuum. You know, you're, you're responding to things that are happening. Uh, so maybe you can elaborate a little bit on why, you know, extending the cultural and linguistic turn in this way is important right now or, or what's going on right now that might be 
might uh, why, why might it be imperative right now for us to to think in this this new way that you suggest in this book? Right, right. Well, one way to kind of get at that question is to turn my own argument on me and say, okay, so you're saying that changes in the material world around us shapes how we think, how we look at that world. And so how did you get your ideas, right? Where did your ideas about neo-materialism or the matter of history, where did those come from? And I think one of the big influences right at this moment, and since the turn of the millennium at least, is of course global warming and climate change. And I think when Dipesh Chakrabarty um, did his, just, I, I think of it as a revolutionary um, essay, you know, the four, the four theses essay, where he said essentially that the reality of global climate change has revealed the inadequacies of our previous uh, theoretical and um, epistemological models, that it shows that they're not adequate to something as vast as global climate change, which influences every single aspect of our existence, right? It's in, it's in our air, it's in our food, it's in our water, it's in our built environment, it's the temperature, obviously, all these things. And that Chakrabarty, I think, of course, Chakrabarty was famous, um, you know, for being a post-colonial scholar who was you know, fairly, fairly solidly on the cultural turn side. But then I think because when he grappled with this um, immense phenomenon, he felt that those ideas were no longer adequate. So I think that's what happened to me too. And partly it's that I'm drawing on other great, you know, thinkers who are much smarter than I am, like, you know, Depeche and, and, and like Latour, really, right? I mean, I think Latour is just foundational for all of these, all of these thinkers because he took things seriously. But what I found frustrating with the cultural turn in STS or other, um, other types of history or uh, studies was they often took only part of the story, right? They really took Latour's story about culture and how culture constructs things, but the reality of the material things around us kind of got left out. Um, and I think even Latour ultimately came to understand that and sort of push back against that and argue for the importance of, of things and understanding the past and the world around us. So again, to go back, where did I get my ideas? I kind of like to think that they stem from those global material realities that uh, we have to face up to. And we need better tools to begin to understand because we're going to be a very different type of people as the climate changes and all these other related changes in our environment begin to kick in. So I hope that's both, both a tool for trying to avoid the worst of climate change, but then also for trying to deal with it effectively.
Yeah, great. And and I'll, I'll I want to turn back to the Anthropocene later in the interview, but uh, before we get there, um, I have a, a unique compliment uh, for this book. I thought it was trippy. Uh, in that, you know, when, when you read it and once you uh, read it or reread it like I did and fully understand neo-materialism, you start to almost see yourself melting into the material world, the natural world, the technology that you interact with. But, you know, from the perspective of a historian, you also see societies and economies kind of melting into the material world. So, I don't know if you just want to respond to that or maybe, um, you know, how, how is thinking this way affected um, your everyday interaction? Is it, has it kind of changed how you, you do things, just this new way of thinking about the world? Yeah, that's, and I, I like that. I like, I definitely take that as a compliment (laughs) that it's kind of trippy, right? Because I think if you take these ideas seriously, um, microbiome, extended cog, you know, extended cognition, you know, and these theories that are sort of rising up around our understanding of the material world. If you take them seriously, it really is a very different idea of what it means to be human. And it's almost, I mean, it's a deeply, in a certain sense, philosophical book. Um, and almost, uh, I hesitate to use the word, but there's an element of, you know, of even a spiritual view of, of the way the world works that comes through. And I talk about that a little bit at the end when I uh, talk about my brother, right? My brother having, mm-hmm. having died and, you know, spreading his ashes in Glacier National Park from a materialist standpoint, um, you see a certain power and renewal that could stem from those materials, in particular his phosphorus and his bones, mm-hmm. um, going to help uh, a tree grow, a pine tree. And that we need to turn towards the earth rather than think so much about abstract higher worlds, that this is the world that has made us, and it's a creative world. It's, it's an, uh, a, a truly an extraordinary place and that we haven't get it, given it enough credit, I think, or appreciation in thinking about the humanities in, in particular. So I think it does change the way I look at the world and the way I act in the world. Um, you know, and just to put that, make that more concrete, right? I like to think about um, how the things you do shape the way you feel and act. And I was in Munich last fall for several months. Um, and during the time I was there the, at the Rachel Carson Center, they have these bicycles that you can borrow and, and ride around. And as you, you mentioned, I, I'd lived in Munich before in 2011, 2012. Mm-hmm. But then we had a car You know, we we took a car everywhere or we took the mass transit, you know, the U-Bahn and so forth. But this time I had a bike. And I realized just in a really deep way how different my understanding of the city was with a bicycle, how much more embedded I was in the world and how much more, I suppose, it did so much more for me. It was so much more rewarding. 
And I felt like I was getting interesting ideas and encountering unexpected sights and people and experiences that really helped to make me a, a different person. And, you know, I ride my bike here too, of course, but just that shift in Munich kind of showed me how maybe even little things can make a big difference in um, the way we understand the world. And when we face something, I was just, you may have saw it, Jonathan Franzen's piece on um, global warming in the New Yorker this week or last week. Um, it's really a, the reality of what we face now is becoming so apparent and it is really quite frightening to, to think about, um, you know, this almost apocalyptic vision of 50 or 100 years from now. And there's a sort of tendency to throw up your hands and say, this problem is so massive, there's nothing I can do. But I feel like there are little things you can do, like riding a bike. But, and here's my, that's hardly original, right? A lot of people say, ride your bike. But what I would say as a neo-materialist, it's not so much that riding the bike uses less carbon, right, or no carbon, um, and so has less environmental impact, but rather a different point, that riding the bike changes the way you think and feel and act mm -hmm. just because of your experience of that particular materiality. And that is more powerful, perhaps, than even the very small change in carbon output that would result from that. So I like to think that even small material changes can have fairly significant effects. And so I try to institute those in my life and the lives of our lives of my children and my wife and our family and you know all sorts of ways. You know, what kind of food do we eat, right? You know, um, what do we do with our free time? Those those sort of things. Yeah, okay. Uh that's great. That the example of the riding a bike versus driving in your car, that that leads me to um, something I thought was a possible danger of the neo-materialist approach. And uh, you know, I just want to say that that I largely agree with this approach, and and I plan on using it in my research. But just for the sake of argument, um, I, I want to bring up this this possible danger. Um, and that would be that thinking uh, truly about uh, the fluid relationship between the human and the material world, there's a danger there in, in kind of rejecting criticism or rejecting politics. Um, and, and if humans are kind of only embedded in nature or an extension of nature, you, you could see that there would be a problem of the appeal to nature fallacy kind of run, run amok. And, and one example you give is this Marin dragline. Am I pronouncing it? The Marin dragline. Oh, Marion. Yeah. Marion, Marion. Marion. Uh, sorry. Marion. The Marion dragline, this huge machine for mining phosphorus. You know, from the material neo-materialist perspective, that could just be seen as uh, and I think you point this out, one uh, assemblage of, of nature, kind of just uh, one uh, dynamic and creative form of the natural world. Mm -hmm. uh, and from that perspective, wouldn't it be kind of hard to make a judgment about the Marin uh, drag line? You know, couldn't you just say that it was, it was 
as equally um, part of the natural world as kind of responsible community gardening. You know, they're just different forms of the material world, neither is worse or better, right? Do you, do you understand maybe that, how that could be a possible downfall? And would, do you want to respond to that? Yeah, I mean, it's a really, it's a very insightful point and a fair criticism, I think, of some of the dangers here. And I don't deny that possibility, particularly if it's sort of misused or misread, could go in ways that I don't necessarily want it to go. But taking it on on its virtues, though, taking it as how would the neomaterialists sort of respond to, well, the Marian's drag line is just as natural as gardening um, for beans in your backyard or at a community plot. Well, one response would be, I would insist that they are both natural, right? That they Mm -hmm. both are equally an expression of the creative power of the earth, of the biology, of uh, the organisms that live on the earth, and the way that our cultural ideas, our inventions, our technologies emerge from not so much just our creative mind, but a creative world. And that I do want to break, you know, resist any any um, rush to sort of put the Marian steam shovel or the drag line into the unnatural category as a means of, of criticizing that. Because I think that's counterproductive and it's wrong too. You know, that's part of another broader point of the book is everything in the Marian drag line comes from nature, mm-hmm. uses natural laws and principles that science has found that these things aren't invented by us. Rather, they, they come from the possibilities that are inherent in um, the material world. But, you know, that said, obviously the whole point of the book is to say, well, how can we have a society that's more environmentally sustainable and that is just, right? A a society that is more fair, where resources are equitably distributed and more people can enjoy their life on, on this planet. And I think there's at least two answers to that to finally get to answering the question, right? And one is just because I'm saying that the Marian drag line is natural doesn't mean I think it's good. The sort of society that it helps to shape is a good thing. Mm-hmm. I think that's the question we should be asking. I, I don't really care whether you want to call it natural or unnatural or anthropogenic or, or coming from the material nature of the world, whatever. The question I think we should ask is, does it make us better people? And does it make this the kind of people that we want to be, right? And in contrast, I would argue that the garden, we, we got a pretty good grasp on what that does to us, right? Human beings have been growing plants, um, food for a very, very long time. It's very unnatural in many ways. I'm not trying mm-hmm. to say that farming is, is um, you know, or it's elite, equally unnatural <laughs> as the, the steam shovel, right? Or completely natural. But that it creates a different type of society, right? People who who grow food locally, that they're distributing locally, 
they're going to have different dynamics, different ideas, different social relationships. It's going to be part of who they are, right? So my question is, which one of those is is better, right? Um, which one do we want do we want to be? So that's one answer. The second answer that I sort of articulate in the book is that um, from a social justice angle, the neo-materialist argument puts forward by reducing or minimizing the role of the human by being less anthropocentric and maybe even post-anthropocentric. And by saying that whatever benefits we human beings enjoy from this planet, from our, our interactions with this planet, they come from, they're sort of a gift from the planet. They're not ours. And therefore you can't say that there was something special about the United States or Germany or Western Europe that allowed them to have an outsized share of the world's resources to this day, of course. But rather, they just were lucky because of a series of material possibilities. They were just lucky to benefit from this. So it's not really ours, right? It's, it's a gift. And therefore, there's a strong sort of political economic subtext here that says we can't claim those things for ourselves they have to be uh, shared much more widely with the rest of the world because gosh they're not really ours in the first place yeah and and i think um you know the these ideas um are meant to be used in studying the material world and and so once you actually employ these methods in in uh, actual historical studies, you you see how um, the political and economic uh, subtexts uh, become an important com- part of the conversation. And so maybe now we should turn to those case studies, and um, uh, uh, maybe you could explain uh, your uh, how you use the neo materialist approach when you study the Texas Longhorns, the silkworms, and and the copper atoms. If you want to walk the listeners through that. Yeah, sure. And just to sort of preface a little bit, um, part of the reason I like the name neo-materialism was to distinguish it slightly from the new materialism to the degree that's sort of a coherent set of ideas. Because there was a tendency of the new materialists to be oddly immaterial, right? Often what they wanted to talk about were people's ideas about materiality. And things themselves didn't figure in a lot of their discussions, which I thought was rather um, odd. Um, So when I wrote this book, I wanted to make sure that things were very much empirically, solidly represented in the story. So I have these three case studies to put the theory to work. Um, So the first one, as you mentioned, is my analysis of the Longhorn cattle. I'm here in Montana, basically, not too far from my home in Bozeman in the Deer Lodge Valley where there were herds of cattle that were raised there by um, some famous ranchers like Conrad Coors. But my point in it is that um, the tendency of most historians when they talk about the open range cattle industry in the American West, which is very brief, right? It's you know, 1870 through maybe 1890, it's very brief, that the tendency is to to say that, well, humans did it, right? 
Americans did it or immigrants did it. You know, Conrad Kurz was a German immigrant. And that they invented this and all of the effort and all of the creativity and all of the work is credited to humans alone. But really it doesn't take all that much effort to quickly realize that that can't possibly be true and that the cattle, the longhorn um, steers and cows that they raised were equally big if not even more important actors in understanding how this industry developed. Um, and part of it's just, you couldn't have done it um, unless these longhorn cows were social animals. And there was a possibility for humans and cattle to sort of understand each other as both being mammals, uh, both being highly social, I wouldn't say humans are necessarily herd animals per se, but we are in a certain sense. We do tend to herd together. Yeah, sometimes it seems like that. It does, <laughs> right? They all, we seek safety in numbers, certainly, and uh, maybe safety in shared ideas so that we don't have to uh, embrace and think about other people's ideas. But, but the cattle, and that was sort of my argument, is, for example, um, often humans you know they use the words that the cowboys would would drive the cattle right you'd have a cattle drive but if you look at the ethology right the animal behavior of the longhorn steers well cat, you don't drive cattle so much as they drive themselves right they decide that they're willing to cooperate with a handful of cowboys right it's usually not very many they decide that if they're willing to do this for reasons of their own, right? Mm -hmm. That seem logical to them. And they don't really care in many ways um, if the humans would like them to move to a different grassy field, right? Or of course they don't know where they're ultimately going to end up, which is right at a slaughterhouse where they're gonna be killed. If they, if they knew that they'd change their mind, no doubt. But, mm -hmm. um, but because they're already a herd animal and they have certain ways of reacting to a mounted uh, cowboy who's on horseback, you know, they, they like to keep that cowboy, for example, sort of behind them at a 45 degree angle. So they'll move in the direction that the cowboy sort of helps them to move in. But if a cowboy tries to get out in front of a cow, they'll usually stop, right? You can't lead cattle that way. They just, they just won't do it. So that's one example, or we could talk about how they're able to survive on their own for months at a time to find grass, to find water, to protect themselves from predators. Those are really, they're very extraordinary animals. And what, after having done all that research on, on the behaviors and the practices, or even the culture, I suppose you could say, of longhorn cattle, it just seems amazing that the, the animals themselves get left out of the story. Right? Mm -hmm. They don't get any of the credit. And to go back to my point, you know, where's the culture, right? Where does the culture reside? Well, it's not just the abstract ideas that humans have, because a lot of this they don't understand or even know about. Rather, I think you have to think about it as an extended culture, right? The culture exists in the cattle in the humans and in that sort of intimate relationship that 
these humans and non-human creatures have. So that was kind of the point I was trying to drive home with uh, the cattle story. Um, similar points in some ways for Japanese silkworms. Um, there I turn it slightly to talk about a different type of creativity, um, which is sort of uh, uh, the creativity of protein synthesis and mm -hmm. evolution of um, silkworms. You know, because silkworms have very short um, lifespans, then they breed in large numbers. Um, there can be all these kind of mutations in the proteins that make the different silks. So none of this was known by the Japanese silkworm farmers. They had a, no idea that this was happening, but they were able to spot that this particular worm had this kind of silk and this one had this kind of silk. And they began to select unconsciously for the ones that they liked. And ultimately they, they got a kind of silkworm that they um, found most useful. Um, but again, the point is the creativity is not so much human, but rather this kind of biochemical process, this biological seat of creativity. And that that has all sorts of consequences for the Japanese. And you know, ultimately, this was an argument that I developed um, in concert with my colleague, Brett Walker, who we did a lot of this research on um, Japan together because he's a Japanese historian. But ultimately, that this was one of the ways that the Japanese began to change how they looked at the world and to think new ideas. So it kind of goes to this materialist argument that the way we think emerges from our engagement with, in this case, these creative little um, silkworms or the silkworm, the silk moth, depending on which one you want to focus on. Yeah, and I think uh, if, if, if I could just say, uh, in that chapter in particular, that's where you really extend upon this linguistic turn and, and you really uh, start to understand how these engagements with the material world affect you know, uh, our thoughts, how we, how we uh, uh, process the world and the resulting kind of expressions of that. Uh, and when it comes to like the term silky, you know, um, uh, how we interpret that. Um, so that, that stood out in that chapter to me. Yeah, and I think that's, yeah, it's an important aspect of that chapter and an important aspect of why many new, new materialists, neo-materialists, um, feel that the old linguistic turn is inadequate. Um, and a lot of linguist, linguistic studies uh, agree with that too now. It's funny because the linguistic turn was based on a fairly dated idea of the nature of language and how it functions. But you know, if you look a lot at the more modern uh, thinkers, there's an understanding that language is processed through all these different parts of our brain that are embedded in our senses and the way we feel, you know, the way our body functions. So what I wanted to get at was take silk, for example, in the cultural linguistic turn, right? And silk, why does silk feel nice? Well, often the emphasis has been, well, that's a cultural thing, right? That's strictly cultural. Um, you're taught to feel that it's nice, but just on a you know sort of instinctive level, most of us would push back on that, and they would say, mm -hmm. "Well, wait a minute, 
but it but it does feel nice, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I've touched it and it's soft and it's smooth. So I was trying to say, well, yeah, that's because your skin, your hand is has evolved to be very sensitive to the feel of the environment around you for totally different reasons. Doesn't have anything to do with like you didn't evolve to appreciate silk, obviously, right? Um, but you did evolve to be able to use your hands and feel things in a very sensitive way. So there's everything I think I say in the book, there's everything about that that is biological, right? It, it has a biological element. It's not genetic, right? It's not based in some sort of genetic predetermination that you're going to like silk. That's, that would just be silly. But it, that it comes through this bodily experience. And so again, to sort of return to the linguistic turn, well, if language now is understood as emerging from feelings and emotions and touch, so the the word silky that appears or variants that appears in all sorts of languages, it's not that that's sort of an abstract concept that people came up with to describe something, but rather it sort of emerges from that engagement with the thing in it, in and of itself. Mm-hmm. So that kind of gives a different spin, I think, on the linguistic turn than we previously had. Yeah, and uh, do, do you want to finish up with, with how copper runs through both those stories, or, or do you want to sure. move on? Yeah. Um, yeah, so as far as the copper goes to, um, ultimately there's uh, all of these stories, both, the cattle and the silkworms, these animals are in proximity to big copper mines um, in both Japan and in Montana. And these copper mines produce a lot of pollution that damages both of these animals. The arsenic in particular kills the cattle in Montana. And then the sulfur dioxide in Japan at the Ashio mine um, turns into acid rain, which damages the mulberry trees that the silkworms eat, and then they ingest it, as well as other toxins like arsenic, and it damages the, these animals. Um, so the, my question was, well, why are both Japan and the United States willing to basically say, well, that's just too bad, <laughs> you know? the copper is more important than the lives of these these longhorns. It's more important than these silkworms, even though those silkworms and those longhorns had created, had been intimately involved in a culture that both of those societies values very, very highly. I mean, you think about the the adulation for the the old open range, right? And the cowboys and how central that is to American society. Well, silk and silkworm farming is is a similarly central idea to Japanese society, right? It was one of their major sort of productions that they sold to the world, you know, even sold it to China. And so why were they so willing to throw it away and, 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 and let the pollution destroy it? And so to understand that, I said, you had to understand the materiality of copper and the power, the sheer power that it could bring to industrialized society. And that in both cases, the United States and in Japan, this was central to their modernization 
through the creation of electricity, communication via telegraph and, and telephone, that copper was the, the metal of modernity in a certain sense. It made all these things possible. But also warfare, you know, the development of the big uh, battleships and ultimately uh, destroyers and aircraft carriers by both the Japanese and the Americans that ultimately converge in World War II can be traced back to that copper because they're both filled with copper. You go, it's, so I'm not saying you couldn't build those some other way that it's, that there was the copper sort of determined that we were going to go down that route. But my point is rather a little more subtle. It's that if you want to build battleships, if you want to have electricity and electric lights, copper is the easiest way to do it. And both Japan and the United States realized that. It was fairly obvious. And therefore, they became more similar cultures, right? They began to converge to two great powers that ultimately are going to battle it out over the who's going to control the Pacific. So that copper is also equally important, um, but tragically, we leave behind these other things. So, and that kind of goes back to my earlier point. You know, mm -hmm. you change the things that you live with, you change the things that you deal with on a daily basis, just on a very intimate, you know, level, you change who you are. So we need to think a lot more seriously about what kind of people we're making ourselves into. Okay, so I, I want to return to the the new global epic uh, epoch, the the Anthropocene. Um, but but I'll do that through explaining really how this near neo materialist approach sunk in for me, and that was um, after reading a report published in Science this year uh, that suggested that one of the most important ways to fight the effects of uh, global climate change might be to plant a trillion trees. I don't know if you, mm. you read that, but I did, uh, yeah. the reason is because trees do something that humans can't just yet. They, they can cheaply and efficiently store carbon. So, uh, you know, and this isn't necessarily, if we decided to plant this trillion trees, this wouldn't be necessarily some geoengineering project because the trees will do this without us, right? When, when people abandon land, the trees will do that. Um, uh, so it's really work, humans working with trees that might be able to have this uh, uh, effect in, in mitigating climate change. And so then that made me think, you know, this partnership between human and tree has been important for so many historical changes from colonization to the new deal, you know, um, the AAA and, and, and the Dust Bowl. Um, so, so, you know, global warming wasn't necessarily a human creation or solely a human creation and perhaps humans won't be able to solely uh, solve this problem. I mean, we definitely won't be able to solve this on our own with the, you know, given the insights of the neo-materialist approach. So, you know, do you want to use that to comment on, on your criticism of the term Anthropocene and, and you know, we, where the neo-materialist approach brings us when we're talking about climate change in the future? Right. Oh, well, that's brilliant. Yeah, I love that. Um, and, and good on you to be reading science, right? I think... Mm -hmm. That's another sort of point of the, the materialist turn is we need to engage with science and, you know, sort of that old barrier's got to, it's just got to go. And we, historians and humanists need to be reading broadly in a lot of different, a lot of different disciplines. 
but yeah, I like that idea a lot um, that it goes to right the creative possibilities of the world around us that we often don't recognize or give credit to, right? I mean, I don't think even the scientific report, I think you're making the point mm-hmm. that, well, really the trees are going to do this. They're the ones who have the, the abilities. They have the, the technology, if you will, or the biochemistry mm-hmm. that makes this possible. And I don't even know if that was in the original science report, was it? Did they, did they make that point? No, I mean, I, this is just something, you know, I, I, with that reading that report and then thinking in the ne- neo-materialist yeah, kind of yeah. mind frame, that's kind of the conclusions I came to. And then I did this whole uh, 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 Twitter storm about it. But uh, yeah, yeah, continue, please. That's cool. Yeah. Okay. Right. So yeah, giving that kind of understanding and that does turn to the, the question of, well, you know, the Anthropocene the problem with the answer to see my criticism of it has been not obviously that it I'm disagreeing with what it's seen, right? What it's trying to label, what it's trying to diagnose, right? Climate change, species extinction of uh, deforestation, all these things. I'm not, I, I know those are real and I, I am very much um, interested in, in having more people understand those things. But my criticism was, well, if you call it the Anthropocene, though, you're sort of valorizing the human role in it. You're saying that humans are the center of this. And of course, this was Crutzen's goal, right? That's partly why he picked that term, I think, because some people back, you know, at the turn of the millennium were still doubtful that this was even happening or that it was human caused, right? That it was anthropogenic. So he wanted to drive that home, right? This really is caused by what humans are doing. And I totally understand that. Um, but, you know, today, of course, there's still people who doubt it, right? Mm-hmm. It hasn't gone away. But my point is in the next 20, 40, 50 years, whatever, it's going to be so obvious that that's not going to be the problem, right? People will see it. We already see it, right? Look at the Arctic ice, right? Look at, we were just up in Glacier and there, you know, the glaciers are going away. They're almost gone in Glacier National Park. You know, so it's obvious that it really is happening and that's just going to become more and more obvious in the, in the decades to come. So to me, the real problem was more the arrogance of calling it the Anthropocene, because it fails to see how we get entrapped with other things, other non-human things that drive us in ways that we didn't expect or even anticipate. And just as a quick aside, that's another criticism of the cultural construct, right? Humans create these things for perhaps with one idea of what they mean, but they often mean all sorts of other things when they're actually put into into action. So James Watt or Henry Ford, or even I, when I was driving my Ford Mustang around Missoula in Mm -hmm. the the 1980s, right? Even I, I didn't have any idea what that was doing, how those carbon gases were interacting in complicated ways with the atmosphere and that this could cause, I didn't know that. So there's no way I constructed that, right? That just doesn't make sense. Rather, it was the human allegiance with 
carbons, you know, whether it was coal or it was petroleum, it was that decision to use that for entirely other reasons that led us down that, that path. So that's why I say, you know, and I'm not the only one to criticize the name, right? People mm-hmm. have said capitalist scene or plantation is seen, but I'd say those are still too anthropocentric. And we should go with something like carbon scene, right? It's, it's the age of carbon because that's the really powerful new thing. It wasn't humans, or at least not solely humans, but their decision to use this extraordinary source of energy to achieve other ends. So again, it goes back to your point. Well, that, wouldn't that be appropriate, right? The, uh, the solution, or at least the one good solution to an era caused by our, our allegiance to carbon, to coal and oil, maybe a solution is to not so much to change our minds, but to change what we deal with, what we ally mm-hmm. ourselves with, and put our lot in with trees. Why don't we yeah. <laughs> embrace trees? And, and the other thing about that that you made me think about is, you know, all our new understanding of how trees communicate, yeah. how sophisticated they are in many ways, and, you know, that they're not just this passive plant that we used to think they were, right? And now that we begin to understand that, you, you can appreciate them as a partner, as, as a co-equal in this crazy ride that we human beings are on because, you know, they're with us. And I think we'd be better people if we were tree people, really, yeah. than, than carbon people. I think and we'd be better in all sorts of, of ways, many of which way I can't even anticipate, right? But I think that would be a better route. Well, Tim, we've taken up a lot of your time already, and unless there's something else you'd like to say about this book, um, I'd love for you to talk about any uh, one of your other projects that you're working on or future projects, if you want to take some time and just talk about those. Sure. Um, so the, the new project that I'm working on for the past few years has been something that I don't have an entirely fixed name for it, but something like the new material human And it's to take the argument made in the matter of history to another level and look at the human organism, the human animal, from a physiological and cognitive level and and say, well, is it, say, an American, just to narrow it down, let's say an American in the year 1970, is that that? American, that person, the same fundamentally as a, an American in 1900, you know, 70, 50 years earlier, or take a group of them, take a thousand, so you'll even off differences between them, men, female, different ethnicities, and so forth. But just have, because we've changed our environment so much since the great acceleration began in 45 or what have you, and there's all these new chemicals and in the environment around us, our microbiomes are changing, antibiotics, more people live in cities. We don't have relationships with trees and other animals like we used to. So my, the, sort of the goal of the project is to say, well, if, if that's true, it's not just a cultural thing, right? We really are different people. We're different, we're different animal. And if that's true, how did that shape the history of the post-war period? 
So it's sort of taken the materialism stuff to a, another level and asking maybe how changes in our very biological substrate shaped the course of history in the post-war period. Wow, that sounds um, great. That sounds like a project that's going to have really important implications. It sounds also like another very trippy project. Um, <laughs> and I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. So uh, take care. All right. Thank you very much, Jason. I enjoyed it as well. <laughs>